Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Today we are talking about trust-based philanthropy. And it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Shadi Salehi, Executive Director of the Trust-Based Philanthropy Project. We're going to be covering this topic from various angles. So whether you're already doing trust-based philanthropy or want to learn about it or never heard about it or want to know what's in and what's out, what are the misconceptions, what's actually trust-based philanthropy all about, stay tuned. You're in for a real treat. So without further ado, Shadi, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you very much. Excellent. So you're out there in San Francisco in the West Coast. I'm here in the UK. We've overcome the time difference, which is really nice. Thank you for making an early start uh, in your neck of the woods. So tell me, we're, we're going to be talking about trust-based philanthropy today, and you are the executive director of the Trust-Based Philanthropy Project. It might be the case of it is what it says on the tin, but why don't we kick off by finding out what exactly is the Trust-Based Philanthropy Project? Yeah, uh, the Trust-Based Philanthropy Project was founded in January 2020, uh, after several years of planning, actually, uh, to contribute to a culture shift in philanthropy where we flip the traditional power dynamics, where uh, traditionally the funder holds all the knowledge and power and control around how resources are spent. And this model, this approach is really about uh, alleviating and addressing that power imbalance and uh, putting more trust and respect um, in the leadership and the expertise of nonprofits that are leading the work. Great. And how did you come to be? I mean, so you said 2020 was trust-based philanthropy already in motion. Uh, I know it's come to light, but it's not a new thing. Sometimes, you know, people think it's just happened now, but how did you come about? Well, so the history of trust-based philanthropy is that it was named back in 2014 by a foundation here in San Francisco called the Whitman Institute. And they named this, this approach um, based on feedback from their grantee partners. Uh, and so full disclosure, I am a former grantee of the Whitman Institute. And when they announced that they were going to be spending out their endowment over the course of 10 years, they decided to go to their grantee partners and ask them for advice on how they would actually prioritize their time, their remaining 10 years as a foundation. And they did a series of focus groups and surveys and two big findings came out of that research. One was the recurrence of the word trust in the survey results, in the open-ended results. So over and over again, the grantees of the Whitman Institute were emphasizing how valuable it was to feel trusted by their funder and how rare that was. And the other big trend that came out of that research was a request for the foundation to advocate for how it funds. And they were uh, providing multi-year unrestricted funding, no paperwork requirements, very relational approach in their grant making, which is quite rare when you look at the, the grand scheme of philanthropy and how it operates. So the leadership of the Whitman Institute took that call seriously. They decided to name their approach and took a cue from the feedback that they got and called it trust-based philanthropy and began to advocate for it by organizing funder peers uh, across the Bay Area and California. So that started in 2014. And as the end date of this foundation approached, they wanted to kick it into gear. 
And uh, I joined them uh, as a consultant at the time to help uh, really leave this legacy of trust-based philanthropy. So we started doing the advocacy work um, collectively and the advocacy really was rooted in peer organizing, connecting with other funders that uh, uh, really held these same values in the way that they did their grant making work. And it just began to snowball. And we eventually uh, teamed up with two other foundations in 2018 uh, to launch an initiative. So we launched it as a five-year project. And the goal was to make trust-based philanthropy a recognized phrase and raise awareness of this approach. Um, and then as we all know, the events of early 2020 with the global pandemic followed by a global racial reckoning uh, really kind of elevated this concept in the discourse of the sector. So now it's we hear it left and right. We hear different interpretations of it, different misinterpretations of trust-based philanthropy, but we were essentially established to um, not just raise awareness of this approach, but help funders recognize the expertise of nonprofit leaders and help them recognize that many of the traditional practices in philanthropy actually do not reflect the values that drive much of philanthropic work, which tend to be around community-centeredness, advancing opportunity, advancing equity. So really the, the simplest form of trust-based philanthropy, if you strip everything down, strip down all the jargon, is ultimately about uh, really doing uh, engaging in philanthropy in a partnership-oriented way, listening to the expertise of, of leaders on the ground, and making sure that the values that you stand behind in your philanthropy are actually showing up in the way that you do the work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, trust-based philanthropy, as, you, as we both mentioned, you know, it's it's a very hot topic. It's all over the place. It's nice to see that there's a history of it before COVID. Um, before we talk about what it is, what isn't it? What are the misconceptions? So you, you, you briefly said there, there are some misconceptions out there. What are some of those misconceptions that you, uh, that you hear left, right, and center about what trust-based philanthropy is? Well, I would say probably the biggest misconception is that trust-based philanthropy is about writing a check and walking away. And it's not at all about that. <laughs> um, yes, unrestricted funding is a core tenet of a trust-based approach. It's one of several. Um, so there is this component that, that is about recognizing that those who are doing the work are best positioned to allocate their resources where they think they should best be allocated. However, the trust-based approach is really about a more partnership-oriented relational approach where funders are shoulder to shoulder with the leaders on the ground, learning from them, learning with them, uh, providing kind of like a systems mindset to how they're working with nonprofits, thinking about ways that they can bring other supports beyond financial resources, whether it's, you know, making connections or opening doors to other funders or just amplifying their work through the channels and platforms that they may have. So it's a more holistic approach. It's actually about moving away from the traditionally transactional approach in philanthropy where where you you know you give a grant and then you expect a report back and then you know maybe an interim report and there's all these kind of transactional kind of inflection points. Lots of reports. Yeah, lots of reports. Um, so in a trust-based stance, it's actually about moving away from that transactional to a much more relational approach where the time is more spent on listening, learning, uh, supporting, um, 
and really championing the work of the organizations that are that are on the ground. Mm. And something you and I spoke about before, it, it trust-based philanthropy certainly is not about not paying attention to impact. Correct. So that's the other misperception that there's no evaluation and no measurement in a tr trust-based approach. Um, I would say that there's a, a much more nuanced way that trust-based philanthropy uh, recognizes and understands impact. Um, first and foremost, trust-based philanthropy takes a learning stance over a proving stance. So I think that's the first place because I think a lot of traditional philanthropy will look to prove that the dollars made a difference or that the funds made a difference. And while I can understand the motivations behind that, there's fundamentally some challenges in even going in to try to prove uh, direct attribution for a, of a contribution of funds toward a social impact goal. Because as we know, social change is complex. There are many, many, many variables. Money is not is just one variable in the grand scheme of things. So when we set out to prove something, we're, we're automatically ignoring a lot of other variables that are at play. So I would say that we have to, when we want to understand impact, we have to start from a stance of learning. What are we learning about this work on the ground? What are we learning about these funds and how they're contributing to the work? And how can we learn about the other factors at play that might be inhibiting impact? And, and how can we listen and learn from those who are leading the work about how they see impact and how they understand change happening? So there's a lot of nuance at play, but I will say that there, there are ways to think about quote unquote measurement um, that might be a little different from the way traditional philanthropy might approach it. So first and foremost, I would say that many trust-based funders take their lens inward to recognize how they can be better partners to the organizations they support. So actually taking a lens of self-accountability and assessing how well they are showing up uh, based on the values they stand behind. So there's a self-reflective approach of how well are we supporting our organizations? What can we do differently to support them and, and, and uh, build their sense of agency to do their work? So there's one realm of that. Um, and then there's a much more, uh, you know, I would say kind of story-based approach to capturing learnings and data where it's not just always about numbers. Sometimes quantitative metrics do make sense for certain change efforts, especially if you're looking at something over the course of time. If you're trying to address poverty rates or education rates or things like that, you can look at that over a long, long period, longer period of time. But then there's these stories that get captured in the short term that can be really instructive in learning about what are the opportunities and the obstacles to change happening. And I think the critical component within that is to make space to listen to those who are leading the work and, and listen to them about how they understand uh, the, the, the path of change happening. So sometimes, you know, it might make a lot more sense to focus on, you know, the, the strength of relationships being built in a community in order to advance a bigger picture social change goal. But often when we come in trying to prove funds are 
are uh, contributing to a specific social change effort or funds are, you know, can be attributed to a social impact goal, we often lose sight of all this other nuanced stuff that's happening in the middle that might be a critical component to getting to that bigger picture change. So I, I guess my, my kind of main point here is that we can't always apply traditional business-oriented, medical-oriented impact frameworks to social change. We have to be open to understanding that there's nuance and qualitative ways to understand change that may not be captured in that traditional quantitative mindset. So there is measurement, but it's it's a different way of measuring from what I would say most uh, traditional kind of industry standard approaches might, um, might uh, uphold. Mm -hmm. Now, let me nitpick a little bit, right, on, on, okay. on the last bit that you mentioned there. So if we're looking at the, at the impact frameworks, the validity of an impact framework, uh, how relevant is it to a specific issue, we can look at that question within or out with the trust-based philanthropy world, right? We can look at impact frameworks irrespective of trust-based philanthropy. But let's say we're looking at trust-based philanthropy world. Let me ask you, if I'm a funder and I have uh, a really robust impact measurement framework that I think I hold dear to my heart and I think is really good, do I go to a grantee and say, look, this is how we're doing it. I want you to embrace this particular framework, whether you like it or not. Or do I go to the grantee and, and ask them, what impact measurement tools framework might you have already at your disposal and then assess that to see whether it aligns with me? Um, do we co-design something? What, what does it look like in practice? Yeah, it's a great, that's a great question. Um, I think the ideal scenario is that the formulation of the theory of change that a foundation might want to formulate um, should inherently be informed by those who are doing the work. I think that's the, the ideal scenario. So if you want to understand the role of your funding and and contributing to a bigger picture social change goal, it is essential to uh, take in the input and experiences and recommendations of those who are doing the work. So how do they see change happening? What are they working toward? And what are the common threads across how the foundation sees its role in the bigger picture social change ecosystem and what the organizations are doing? And I think that is the ideal scenario where the theory of change is informed by what the leaders who do the work are pointing out as key indicators toward success in the long run. That's the ideal. I would say in most contexts, in terms of how traditionally things have operated, it is what it's that uh, that former, the one that you pointed out, where foundations will say, here's our theory of change, let us know how your work fits into this. And I think that's where problems arise, because then you have organizations that may not see eye to eye with that theory of change, but they want the funds. So they'll write a report or a proposal and say and explain how they're fitting into that. And then they have to do all their reporting to measure all the things the foundation has already uh, identified as the indicators without necessarily having their input. And then the foundation ends up getting data that's just kind of designed to fit into the box that they've created, but it's not necessarily yielding any real learnings 
about the work. And then maybe there's all these other learnings that the, the, the grantee organization is not even including in their reporting because it doesn't fit into the structure that has been developed by the foundation. And, you know, I think that this is all part of this greater paradigm uh, that has been set up in philanthropy, where we're operating inherently with these underlying assumptions that people with wealth are best positioned to measure impact, identify what those measure impacts are, uh, impact measures are, um, identify where money should be spent, identify how and which organizations should receive funds to do the work, how they should work together. And this is the top-down power dynamic that we often talk about in trust-based philanthropy. That whole equation, that dominant paradigm, actually, you if you think about it and you look at it in all of our processes, there is no agency for those who are actually not just doing the work and 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 leading on a lot of the the, the issues and, and solutions that that foundations want to support, but it's also not taking into account the lived experiences of those who actually are experiencing the social challenges that philanthropy often seeks to address. So it's about flipping that a bit and actually taking a pause and recognizing, wait a minute, our processes, our design, our assumptions are all coming predominantly from a handful of people who hold a lot of wealth. And in our society, we tend to favor and celebrate the successes of those who have gained lots of wealth uh, because we see that as an indicator of success in our world. And then we downplay the expertise and the, the vision and the, the knowledge of those who maybe haven't amassed that much wealth, but have all these other kind of uh, resources and assets that, that we have historically um, uh, trivialized in our society. So I think it's a way of actually taking a pause and recognizing we've been doing things kind of backwards. If we want to address the complexity of social problems in today's world, we must listen to and trust those who are experiencing those issues firsthand. And we must resource the leaders who are embedded in that work and know that work and are committed to that work um, in order to really come to you know, the solutions that we want to see. So it does require us to really... Um, let go of assumptions, and uh, also maybe get a little uncomfortable because that's what, you know, this is ultimately about relationships and relationships aren't easy. Um, they're not always easy. And, but if, but the, it's essential work, I think, if we're going to tackle the complexity of the the problems that we're dealing yeah. with. Yeah. Uh, getting a little bit uncomfortable. I, I, I like that. And I've seen it firsthand and I've seen really well-meaning organizations um, embracing that that discomfort because they appreciate that there's there's learning here um, that they could benefit from some question and there's loads of questions that are coming to mind here but uh, some of them at the top uh, three questions from the developing world the global south are, are there any insights that are coming in terms of how things are perceived from those who have lived experience the second one being uh, is there a focal point of information for trust-based philanthropy insights like you know, and the third is what's the universe look like for trust-based philanthropy right now? Um, you know, I think for the first question on how to really get insight from those who have lived experience, that's going to vary depending on where you're funding the issue and all those things. But I would say, 
um, the value that undergirds that point is um, is really to listen to those who are closest to the issues and fundamentally recognize that the work of philanthropy is about being accountable to those communities that we seek to support. So that can manifest in many different ways. There's uh, you know, a growing movement and interest in participatory grant making, which when done well, can be a great way of, of making sure that the, the perspectives of those who are most uh, affected by an issue or, or are living those particular issues that we seek to address have an opportunity to inform grant decisions. So that's one kind of one um, approach that might be a way to do it. I think also it's about uh, supporting organizations that are led by you know people who are who have experienced those issues. Whether it's you know if you're working on supporting racial justice, supporting Black and Brown led organizations. If you're working on supporting you know gender justice, supporting women led organizations that are kind of in those communities and having conversations with those grantee partners about how they what they're hearing from the community. So they, you know, I think having conversations around just that accountability. There's a lot of tools for that. Um there's a home, there's the fund for shared insight that has a listen for good tool that that creates opportunities for for funders and and nonprofits to capture uh learnings from the communities that they support and work with. Um there's also you know, a lot of other tools to kind of assess uh, and, and gain insight from those who are closest to the issue. So there's a lot of manifestations, but I would say the value there is our work is fundamentally accountable to those who are experiencing the issues and we must listen and find ways to listen. So that just looks different and it can be structural or just kind of observational. Uh, the core principles of a trust-based approach, there's six of them and they're interrelated. It's give multi-year unrestricted funding, recognize that the work that nonprofits do is unpredictable and it's long-term. Uh, it's doing the homework. So funders taking on the onus of due diligence to uh, learn about organizations before they fund them, You know, follow them on social media, maybe attend a virtual event or in-person event, kind of let's do the homework as funders to um, really get to know the organizations that we're interested in supporting and the issues that we're funding in. Uh, the third principle is simplify and streamline paperwork. And this is one that also gets lifted up quite a bit. There is so much that is required of nonprofits in terms of submitting proposals, reports. This can take up 30, 40% of an executive director's time. And if just imagine, then multiply that by, you know, however many funders they may have, then all their time and energy is going to appeasing funders rather than doing the work and leading the work. So let's let's actually give them that time back and simplify our processes and find other ways of learning about the work and, and, and having them share their learnings. And then the final three principles are more about kind of the ethos of how you show up in partnership with a with a nonprofit. So that's solicit and act on feedback, be responsive and uh, transparent, and provide support beyond the check. And so these are kind of these ways of recognizing that if we want to be trusted and we want to have a productive, mutually accountable relationship, and we want our partners to be transparent with us and communicative with us, then we must embody those same values with them. 
we got to show up transparently. We got to be responsive to their needs. We got to be show up as partners. So those are the core principles. And I would say that's the grant making alone. Um, There's all, there's a whole other framework that we provide and thinking about how do these values show up in your organizational culture, your structures, your leadership. So it's important to recognize that this is, this goes beyond, this is a cultural approach beyond a grant making approach, but those six practices interrelated are probably the most important things to lift up in terms of the grant making. And so the final question, the current state of trust-based philanthropy. Uh, You're right. We did not imagine when we launched this initiative in 2020 that this phrase would be out there as much as it currently is. It is everywhere. And it didn't, I mean, it didn't really even... Uh, you know, we started the Do One Better podcast. I started it back in early 2019. It took a while until trust-based philanthropy as a phrase actually made it into the show at some point. I don't remember which episode actually brought it first, but I remember it wasn't out there from the outset. Yes. And, uh, and now it's, it's in every been... episode almost. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I've noticed um, it's and I, you know, I see it in my Google alerts. I'll get Google alerts multiple times a week with references to trust-based philanthropy. And you know what's interesting? When we first launched this project, our goal was let's just take five years to get this phrase out there. And then within six months of our launch, it was out there. And so, you know, the big reason for that is the 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 global pandemic. You know, it was a a, a moment when most of us could not deny that you know, we had to listen to those who were on the ground and a lot of the, you know, burdensome processes that had been put in place by philanthropy were no longer relevant or important. You know, it was literally a matter of life and death at at that point where dramatically many foundations shifted their practices within weeks, you know, uh, unrestricting previously restricted uh, grants, uh, loosening uh, deadlines and reporting requirements, um, you know, actually listening to those and trusting the, the the organizations, especially organizations on the front lines that were kind of in the thick of of the the crisis. So that was a wake up call that um, inspired a lot of interest in this trust based approach. So it was timely that we had launched the project already. <laughs> Uh, not that not that we could have planned or expected or 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 uh, anticipated anything that that was to come, but it was timely because there was a quick and and dramatic interest in hearing from funders that were already doing a lot of these practices. And then, you know, followed by the murder of George Floyd and the racial reckoning uh, that really motivated many people in power, especially in philanthropy. And, you know, of course, we saw it across corporations and other places to to different degrees, um, beginning to reckon with the deeply entrenched white supremacist, white dominant culture that has shaped all of our institutions and has been upheld by many of the structures that that philanthropy and many other sectors have, have instituted. And so that prompted, among many foundations, a recognition of how systemic inequity has infused so much of what we do, has infused so many of the the implicit biases in the work. And so that that took the work of trust-based philanthropy to an even uh, deeper level when foundations and people in power and decision-making roles began to recognize that, you know, there's there's been 
harm that has been perpetuated uh, by philanthropy unintentionally that has really um, degraded the trust that could be between funders and communities and funders and, and, and uh, people of color-led organizations. And so that actually helped even deepen the way that people understood the importance of trust-based philanthropy as foundations began to see and want to support and resource black and brown led organizations. There was a realization that if they were to enter into a relationship with these new organizations that they hadn't supported before, they needed to start from a foundation of trust and they needed to repair whatever harm and distrust may already be there because many of these organizations have been systematically excluded and overlooked by philanthropy. Uh, and so many of the structures that we've put in place, like the expectations we have around, you know, a nonprofit's ability to write a 20 page narrative proposal and the, you know, all these expectations that have been imposed on nonprofits have actually systematically excluded a lot of efforts that might be visionary worthy efforts that just haven't had access to the training or don't have the staff capacity to be able to write, you know, a 20 page proposal that checks all the boxes and puts everything in a theory of change and uses all the jargon that, that philanthropy has, has required of nonprofits to use. So I think it, it has, so the, the year 2020 was a wake up call that prompted a lot of self-examination and a lot of change in the way foundations do their work. And then, of course, the other big thing that happened in 2020 uh, were the historic unrestricted investments by Mackenzie Scott, where she, you know, gave billions of dollars away in, in unrestricted funding to organizations and where they literally got a call overnight that they, you know, they, they're getting all this money. And that, too, because of those significant unrestricted investments that came to be named by many trust-based philanthropy. I would say I, I commend and, and, and appreciate and celebrate um, those historic contributions by Mackenzie Scott. The unrestricted part of it is aligned with a trust-based approach. However, I would probably say, I'm not sure there's a real relational approach and how that's being done. So there is some problems in conflating that. However, I will say that was yet another inflection point that became a moment where it just kind of kind of push the discourse forward in philanthropy to recognize, oh, we can do this differently. We don't actually, actually, we're we're operating in a different world now. And we can't really rely on the status quo because the status quo hasn't really been serving us. And I think it has inspired a lot more openness uh, in, in doing this work differently. The final thing I'll say, though, even though we are in a moment of paradigm shift where there's a lot of power reckoning and a lot of openness uh, to re-examining practices. I'm also hearing that many foundations, now that you know, supposedly the pandemic is over, um, are slipping back into their traditional ways, or they're taking a pause to do their kind of you know siloed strategic planning. So there we are kind of in this strange moment of like, are we gonna revert back to the old way, or are we going to actually stay in on this track of reimagining? and 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 rebuilding our structures for a 21st century you know kind of post pandemic world um because if we're looking back you know the the old way wasn't quite working so 
how can we take advantage of this moment and actually continue to reimagine the work and not be afraid of of the unknown Hmm. that might come with that? Interesting. Very interesting. Let me ask you a question that I don't know whether anybody's ever asked you, but but I'll ask you and whether trust-based philanthropy has a position on the merit or otherwise of not accepting unsolicited funding applications. And I guess the, the argument there is if you're if if the only funding applications that you're considering are those who you sought out as a funder, conceivably there would be blind spots, conceivably there would be voices that aren't heard. It's such a good question. And believe it or not, this question has come up um, a few times. So it's understandable that not every foundation can accept uh, unsolicited uh, proposals. You know, whether it's the size of your foundation or your staff capacity, um, you know, of course. So I would say, so we don't take a formal stance. I believe it can be, you can be a trust-based foundation and not accept unsolicited proposal and you can have open calls. Either way, I think you can be trust-based, but there are a few keys to this. One, if if you are not accepting unsolicited proposals, you should be transparent about why and and be very, very clear about what your grant making criteria are so that it's just clear why you've made that decision and you can just be honest and transparent about it and be very clear about your grant making guidelines and process of identifying prospective grantees. I think putting that out there is a really key part of it. Um, Another element of this, though, is that I would say you really do need to check for implicit and internal bias. Trust-based philanthropy is not about finding and funding, you know, the organizations that you like or you click with. It's not about that. You know, you might have some organizations you really like and you click with, but that's not the point. The point is identifying organizations that are aligned with your same values and that are working toward those same goals that you are and learning from them and informing your strategies based on what you're learning. Um, So sometimes that does mean casting a wider net than what is in your current network. Sometimes that does mean diversifying your board, diversifying your staff, making sure the staff are representative of the communities that you want to support, um, doing the homework. So that was that second principle that I mentioned, really getting out there, understanding the issue. If you care about, you know, X, Y, Z issue, let's say you care about ending hunger, get out there, do your research, you know, find out about organizations, go to events, you know, do that work and really push yourself as a funder. And that beca- that's the rigor. That's some of the rigor that comes in a trust-based approach. Push yourself to understand the ecosystem that surrounds that whole issue and who's doing the work and, and challenge yourself. Who's not at the table? What, you know, and so there's, there's a lot that can be done. Um, I will say one thing that I would recommend for organizations that don't accept um, unsolicited proposals is to have some way for organizations to get their their work on the radar, whether there's like a form they can fill out, just some way to kind of make themselves known because it can feel like a black box sometimes. Um, So that's one thing. You can also do, but you know, open call, open applications, you know, that can be done really well, but that can also perpetuate mistrust um, because if you're not clear about how decisions are made and you have an open gate and you invite all proposals and you're still only approving, you know, like 1% of the proposals that are coming in every time, well, it's time to actually be clear on 
or to really double check, are we clear enough about our, our criteria? Are we actually inviting proposals from those who are most aligned? So I do think there's a real need to look at the communication, how you're communicating the goals, how grantees are being selected, the priorities, the, the, the eligibility criteria, all those things, and really taking a hard look at that and being transparent about how decisions are made. Because that can also perpetuate a lot of distrust if you have an organization that's applying year after year after year and continuing to get declined then it there's something there to get curious about yeah um now in terms of the trust-based philanthropy project that's the name of the organization what's your website address trustbasedphilanthropy.org we have a lot of resources templates uh webinar recordings uh, we have an email listserv for funders that want to, you know, connect with others who are doing this this work and and um, working along this trust based journey. So I encourage anyone to check check that out. Great, great, great. And uh, final point here, key takeaway. Do you have a key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's uh, today's episode? I think the key takeaway is to recognize that a lot of, of the ways that we've done philanthropy are, are not really rooted in any real legal requirements. Um, these are just practices that have been perpetuated over time. So the key takeaway is take a get curious about how you're approaching your grant making practices and structures and think about ways that they can better match and uh, reflect the values behind your work. Excellent. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure hosting you on the Do One Better podcast today. And your work sounds fascinating. So I wish you continued success. And uh, I, I'm sure it's only going to get more interesting as, as time goes by. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Shadi Salehi, Executive Director of the Trust Based Philanthropy Project. For information about this episode and nearly 200 other interviews and case studies, with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lij.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. I thoroughly enjoyed producing today's episode for you. I hope you walk away better informed about trust-based philanthropy. And I'll catch you next week. <laughs>